This is Farah, and you're listening to the Be For Bacchus podcast, the podcast where we talk about wine stories from the Levant, Eastern Mediterranean, and the Caucasus. So I'm sorry for the delay, but I had to do a lot of digging on this one. You'll see what I mean when I get into the nitty-gritty details of today's episode. I hope everyone is staying safe and taking the necessary precautions, not just for yourselves, but for each other. As you probably know by now, the coronavirus has been taking over the world. But I do think that this is a great time for us to kind of slow down, stay home, and just reassess what's really important and what we've been doing to our Earth. And to recalibrate everything in our lives. Today we're going to talk about Chateau Lebanon's first winery. It was founded back in 1857 by Jesuit priests. It was part of the monastery at the time. It wasn't a commercial winery. In the late 1880s, Father Kern, who was a priest there, saw the potential of the lands of Ta'nayel and Zahle, which are the areas surrounding Chateau and decided it was time to amp up production. He traveled to Bouferi in Algeria, which was a French colony at the time, to bring back French vines like Cinso, Carignan, and Grenache. Luckily enough, this was right before the Ottomans outlawed trade because of the spread of phylloxera. Now, if you go back to episode 13 for a quick refresher on that, it'll help you understand what that means. It's only seven minutes and we've just started, so please go ahead and do that. You probably should go back and listen to it because we're also going to talk about Merwah, which was also covered in those seven minutes. No, really, press pause. I'll wait. Just seven minutes. So the demand for wine grew because of the presence of French troops when Lebanon was a French mandate in the 1920s. After Lebanon's independence in the 1940s, the country and Ksara did very well. A bit too well. In 1973, the Vatican decreed that all monasteries needed to sell off their commercial enterprises and Chateau Xara became a private company after a bunch of investors bought it. But a few years later, the Lebanese Civil War broke out and Chateau Xara was occupied by Syrian and Israeli armies. However, they continued to make and sell wine. Once the war ended in the 90s, the winery upgraded everything and the sector had to be rebuilt after years of difficulty. Which brings us to today. Chateau Xara is Lebanon's largest winery and exporter in terms of volume, representing 38% of local production, and almost half of that is sent abroad. They're in 41 countries, from the US to Burkina Faso, and they find new markets through international fairs and contacts with embassies, and just playing the trade game. They also offer the WSET program which is a highly respected wine education program based out of the UK. They have levels 1, 2, and 3, and they've had 400 graduates from the program so far. They do hope to eventually offer level 4 diploma, which is a longer, extensive kind of program. It's 18 months long, and you need a lot of funding and people for that, so they're not there yet, but they will be. Our guest today is Ili Ma'amari, the export manager of Chateau Xara. He's a respected wine judge. He's received an award from the French government for his contribution to the wine world. And as of January 2019, he became a member of the Académie Internationale du Vin. This association has less than 100 members. It's a really big deal to be part of that club. It has high standards. You have to be elected. You can't just join. And it includes some of the biggest names in the wine world. So it's a really big deal to have somebody from Lebanon in that club. Elie studied enology in France, but how he got into wine was a series of uncontrollable events. Like a lot of us, he fell into his passion, and he never left. So you started working on Exada in 81 or 1980? 80, I think. Yeah, 80. So this marks 40 years. Exactly. Years. How does that feel to be in one place? <laughs> well, I've that never, I've never changed. I started. He, you know, when you specialize in such a domain, yeah. Doing, I did the viticulture and I did the the energy. You don't have too many. Either you leave the country or you have to, yeah, to stay with country with, with a big company who can afford you. It's Jack Sarah <laughs> or or Kefreya. This is this is the case. So, I started with with Sarah and I feel like like in a family or have mm. very good relation with the owners and. 
So that's why I never thought of, of uh, changing. And I'm happy here that uh, so started in the wine uh, uh, technical part and then moved to yeah. the commercial commercial part. So this I think it's this is a big advantage to be uh, to have both the commercial and technical uh, part. I mean, you're a teacher of enology. You're mm -hmm. a part of French committees and associations. You're on the you're a permanent member on the tasting for OIV. OIV. But and you I almost joined Saha. Saha. Yeah, I read that somewhere that you almost joined Saha before joining Xara. <laughs> that was really long time. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, I, I forgot all this. That was in seventy. But when I when I finished, I, I studied the commercial science at the okay. beginning and finished and started with Xara. Yeah. Then I went uh, directly because of the, uh, you know, the story because of the. Uh, Can you tell the story? Uh, <laughs> uh, because we had the French winemaker who's used to live in Xara, of course, and then the situation was, was not getting better at all. So his wife wanted to uh, go back uh, to, to France, and this is what she did, and she gave him an ultimatum. So either he follows her or... So, uh, so, he had, so he had to initiate me. Yeah. I didn't have any idea about the wine making. Or something. Did so you want to do that? Me. Well, I discovered uh, a passion for towards wine, and this is this is what what I did. So, I was living up there, and I started uh, making the wine, but without having any uh, any diploma for mm -hmm. uh, for that. So I was on the phone the whole time and going back and forth to to France, and I did several uh, uh, several training in different uh, regions from Alsace till uh, till Languedoc, Roussillon, passing by uh, Bordeaux and Burgundy. Madeira. I did yeah. uh, when I did my study. I, I stayed there for six months in Madeira. This is how uh, I ended up till 1994 was my last uh, vintage. When and your first was 1982. Uh, yes, 80, 83. So like the fact, entirety 83. of the most tense years, I guess, of yeah, exactly, the war. Exactly. What is that uh, like, yeah. making wine in the midst of a civil war? I'm, I miss it a lot, of course, but it, was, <laughs> it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. I was kidnapped twice. Uh, I've read that. Uh, uh, so what did you hear? Yep, like the that was really, really, very, very <laughs> always, yes. Dima, it was called Dima. The, the company was called Dima. What made you decide? Well, I had friends over over there who went okay. over there and told me, uh, "Why don't you join or something like that?" And then, so it just had, kind of uh, happened. Kind of happened, yeah. Okay. I did uh, an interview and then decided to uh, to stay in in Xara and this is what this is what happened. And then the one thing led to another. Uh, the uh, the war and everything uh, that obliged. The wine, the French winemaker, to leave and then to teach me about this. So, uh, how did you go from being the the winemaker that kind of like came in to rescue, basically, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to then becoming the export manager? How well, I, as I said, my last uh, vintage was the 1994, where we brought a French winemaker, and um, I was supposed to. Uh, I was supposed to, uh, when I come back in '97, to take back the winemaking. So three and a half years I stayed there. But during this time, you know, it's a long, long time, and, and the French winemaker was well established. And well, mm -hmm. uh, so they offered me the, to, to create the export department. And, right. and, uh, so, so it didn't it's good exist to make the wine. No, we did some export, but really nothing as uh, as a, a proper. Uh, and this is what I did. So. Also having the uh, commercial uh, part in my studies, uh, commercial science, and then the technical. So it helps a lot when you mm -hmm. go to present the wines. It's different from someone who just sells the wine and someone who makes the wine who knows it. And I still work with, with James doing the, uh, the blending. So we work together to do blending because I know what, uh, what is in demand, uh, what are the tendencies in, in, on the market. Uh, we started by very, very oaky uh, wines. Then a little bit less oaky mm -hmm. than the where uh, fruit structured uh, very well structured full full bodied ones and then now towards more fruity and less uh, structured people they don't want to keep the ones for a long uh, long period so the evolution is is there so I followed all this evolution and I so know you guys are the, adapting to the market more or well you have to adapt it's 
not it's not something like the chateau is is this is our flagship and this is the way we want to do it and we'll keep doing it like this but for the others for the entry level you have to adapt and you have to follow the the needs of uh, uh, market so like the uh, indigenous uh, grape variety have been hearing all over they want indigenous indigenous mm. uh, grape variety and that's why we, we thought about the Mirwah and Abedi. then we went more towards uh, the uh, to the Mirwah because I think it has more consistent and, and I insisted on having the Mirwah and this is what, what happened and it has my opinion Mirwah has more uh, more uh, chance of, of uh, really succeeding and growing compared to the Abadi, which is a more difficult uh, grape variety. You, you know, it has it's a white wine, and for white wine, you need to have acidity, freshness, and things like that. While the Abadi is not is not like that. You have you have to because uh, it gets a lot of sugar in it uh, and low acidity. So. Uh, you put it in oak without oak mm -hmm. so it's it's much more uh, difficult to do it, to really succeed it compared to the uh, Merwa while the Merwa is very nice acidity uh, minerality where it comes from it's really uh, uh, the terroir personality so we have this minerality coming from the bedrock that it has the, the hard weather the uh, the altitude we're talking about 1600 uh, uh, meter of altitude and we're talking about more than 70 years old vines. The accent is there while the Abadi, that's that's my opinion, mm -hmm. the Abadi is a little bit more difficult uh, to have. We've been using this one for 27, 28 years but to produce the Arak, El Merwah. And then we, four years ago, I, I saw the, the need for that and then monocepage and then wine, not, uh, not to be distilled. It's a very beautiful uh, wine and it has a huge success, thank God. We have no stocks, it sells out. Mm -hmm. It's only for the export or the local market that, that yeah, you struggle to get some uh, yeah, because here. we don't have enough. It's exported. Uh, it's a beautiful bottle you know. too. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful bottle, beautiful label and beautiful wine. It's really mm -hmm. uh, a very, very nice uh, nice wine that pleases. Uh, it goes really well with the Lebanese mezze, with the fried fish. Uh, people, they think it's like a semillon, other like Chardonnay, an oak Chardonnay, other like Sauvignon. It's really intriguing uh, uh, grape variety and really yeah. taste uh, with unique. this wine. Yeah, very unique, exactly. So Ili wasn't supposed to be the winemaker. He ended up taking over when the French winemaker left as the war broke out. After learning the ropes, when things calmed down, he went to France and studied viticulture and enology. But when he came back, James Paget was the winemaker, so Chateau Xara offered Ili the opportunity to push export. And if you think about it, it makes sense. As the former winemaker, he knows what he's selling, but he also knows how to come back and adapt the products to the market since he knows how it's made. But how do you operate as a winemaker? during a war. There were a few producers during the Civil War and you guys had vintages non-stop throughout the war. True. I always wonder, how does, how does a winery stay afloat in a period like that? Like, are there still sales? Was it still like business as usual? No, not, I mean, not at all, not at all. Like, like uh, 81, when you have the uh, Zahli War, mm -hmm. we only did the, the, the vines that are in, in Ksar, so we're talking about 21 hectares which is one-sixth or one-seventh of the, the production. So it's very, very, very small. And, uh, you know, you produce it and you do not sell it in the same year. We sell it uh, afterwards. So uh, the war was on off uh, raging and then calming. And then so we uh, succeeded to, uh, to sell it. The demand was, was there because no wine was... Uh, was produced during this period, or very, very little wine produced during this period. Mm -hmm. There was a demand. What were your thoughts yeah. during that time? Like, was it ever, well, were you ever like, what am I doing? Why am I making wine? Like, what with what's going on? And then, I <coughs> yeah, mean, Xara was occupied we, uh, by the Syrian army? Yeah, of course. They were, they were kidnapped. in the, uh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was never a point where yeah. you're like, I don't need this. Well, <laughs> well I, I thought about this, but you, when you're hooked, it's something that you cannot, uh, you really hook. And, and you know, I, was, I used to go, I used to go to the airport, someone used to take me to the airport, go to Larnaca, from Larnaca to Damascus, and from Damascus people bringing me to, uh, to Ksara. But I didn't <laughs> do this every day, but I, yeah. I, I did it and I stayed for 40 days or a month 
not going and because it's, it was impossible to mm-hmm. go uh, back and forth uh, yeah. to Beirut or, or uh, to move. So my family was here and I was there. And, and honestly, the, the second time I was kidnapped, I was so shocked. <laughs> so it, uh, I stayed, uh, I think, three weeks without going out or perhaps less. Yeah. Was, it was quite shocked. Uh, I mean, the second yeah. time, not even the second time. <laughs> I thought, uh, uh, the hell it's really uh, this is not uh, really work I was so afraid so yeah. afraid that I, I said this is the end this is the end because before we move to the next topic let me explain a few things two words when it comes to entering a new market you have the on trade and the off trade on trade means hotels, bars, restaurants, and off trade is supermarkets, wine shops, convenience stores, basically anywhere a customer can come and buy it themselves rather than being served the product. The way that Chateauxara does it is they start with the on trade, then eventually move to the off trade. That was how they did it in the UK, starting first with Lebanese restaurants like Marouche and then moving to Waitrose and Whole Foods. Now, this is obviously an easier way to go about it, but there are worries that the strategy could pigeonhole Lebanese wine as an ethnic wine or something that can only be popped along with its national food rather than it just being something good enough to sell on its own and compete with any other wine. What's the most surprising place of opportunity, you think, for export that maybe people are not aware of? The States. Oh, really? The States can take all the production of Lebanon. Yeah. Without even noticing it, it's it's huge. Yeah. Canada. Mm-hmm. I do uh, almost two hundred thousand bottles in, in Canada. What Only are the in, challenges in, there, though? Like, why don't we have more uh, the challenges in, in Canada? Is that you have a monopoly. Okay. It's very very tough to get into the monopoly. But I've been working on this for such a long time, mm-hmm. going frequently doing tasting like that, and I have, now I have uh, seven ones that are registered. Uh, three of them are religious as uh, continuous uh, approvision uh, continuously uh, supplemented approvision is the uh, the buying so okay. you have grades of, so you have the regular that's top but when you talk regular you talk about uh, three four five hundred thousand uh, bottles which, which is something that you cannot do so you cannot go uh, and then you have the continue, and then you have the. And then the U.S. the number one in consumption. It's huge. Exactly huge, and if people take talk about China, it's extremely difficult. China, extremely. I've been four years now, going there once, or not twice a year. It's very difficult. I sell to two uh, provinces, but extremely difficult market. Why? Because they don't know where Lebanon is. They have no idea about Lebanese wine. They taste it, they like it, but it's very difficult to resell it. So you sell, you find someone and you sell it, but it's very hard to resell it. So to keep to the go, cycle yeah, going. To go and then talk to people, do tastings uh, in order to be able to sell what you've mm-hmm. already sold and right. delivered over there. So it is a very difficult market. But it's not like sure. that in the U.S.? Because I've heard stories that it's also a bit challenging there. It's much more, for much more open. They, they want to discover. Well, it's also difficult just, because of the laws in those counties. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's like, it depends. Every, every, every state, uh, state has, has its own. And then you still have monopolies. Did you know that? You have monopolies in the states. Like, like From distribution companies? Yeah, yeah, Pennsylvania cannot sell to anyone. You have to go through the, uh, through the monopoly. Mm. There's a monopoly, state monopoly, who says, like Nebraska, it's a very small market, but, but you, have, you still have uh, states where it's governed by the monopoly. Yeah, they have laws that are left over from the prohibition, so it's, exactly. it's very backwards. Completely different, completely different, uh, different laws. And yeah. different, uh, Canada and the U.S. are complicated when it comes to imports because they have different regulations on the federal level and the province or state level. Basically, there's a lot of red tape. For the U.S., it's further exasperated by the three-tier system. This system was put in place after the prohibition ended. In case you don't know, the prohibition was a 12-year period in the U.S. when alcohol was illegal. It ended in 1933, but obviously, during that time, you had a lot of speakeasies and there was alcohol running all over the place. Didn't really work. So this system has three tiers or levels. You have importers and producers, 
distributors, and retailers. In order to sell, you have to go down the chain, and you can't be someone who does all three. In some states, the state government controls the whole flow. One loophole has been brew pubs and wine clubs, but this system affects control, profit margins, taxation. It's a big mess. And we haven't even discussed bringing in an imported liquor, which has to be registered and tested and licensed and subject to tariffs and fees. Let's just say it's a headache. But the U.S. is the top market as far as wine consumption is concerned. So it's mostly coastal areas that have... Yeah, East Coast, West Coast and Texas. In Texas, which is very strange, the most important I mean, wine shops and things like that are Lebanese. In Austin, I met this guy uh, from Lebanese origin. 81 wine shops. 81. In Texas? Many in Texas. All his? All his. His and his brother, so it's called Twin Liquors. was his, wow. Him and his brother, twin, twin brothers. Oh, that's cute. And Twin <laughs> Liquors, some of them are very small, but some of them... Five or six are huge, you know. It was they have kept the uh, the love for for level, wow. but they perhaps they came once or they do not import because okay. they have wine shops. You know, you have to first step is to import, but you cannot sell. You need to sell to uh, to distributors, and then distributor has to sell to retailers. So it's very well div- yeah. divided. Yeah, three tier so system. Yeah, the three tiers exactly. Yeah. You know about that. Yeah. What did you import in the states? California. <laughs> the the mothership of wine there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful region. Also. Yes. Everybody wants to go there. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is beautiful. It's a lot like my, here, my, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It reminds me a lot of. Uh, yes. Yeah. So this is this is crazy. I checked the Twin Liquors website, and their history of running stores dates back to the late 1800s, as in before the prohibition. After the prohibition ended and alcohol was legal again, the Jabour family started the Jabour's package store, which was home to a liquor store, a drugstore, and a soda fountain all in one. It was all the rage back then to have them all under one roof. And then in 1982, a new generation of Jabours opens twin liquors in honor of Theodore Jabour, one of the twins from the original Jabour's package store. Okay, now let's talk about Elie's training in Madiran an area in France which is known for tanat, a specific kind of grape that is thick-skinned and gives a very tannic wine. The Madiran training that you did, because that, that mm-hmm. felt so unique. Like, I haven't seen that. Like, you know why I chose Madiran? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, Madiran is on the foot of, of the uh, mountain, the uh, Pyrenees. And it has a similar uh, climatic, similar climatic conditions like like in uh, in Lebanon, with the exception with the of the altitude. They are at three hundred meters down. but it's it's next to the the foot of uh, the uh, the Pyrenees, and it has very dry uh, weather. It rains six to eight hundred millimeters of rainfall, like in the in okay. the, the Bekaa Valley. So they have very similar uh, production. And I adore the Tanat. They have the Tanat. Mm-hmm. It's the only place where they grow this Tanat. And I really love this this grape variety Tanat. And that was the reason why I've chosen Tanat and uh, the, to go to Madira and not to uh, to Bordeaux. Although I had the opportunity, Burgundy, I will never do it. If you want, I, I adore burgundy wines, but you cannot do it because we don't have the climate for that. But that makes sense as far as training, as to go to a region that is more similar to where you're actually yeah. going to grow your grapes. Okay, so historically, Madiran was associated with Tanat. But it turns out that right now, it's becoming the trademark grape of Uruguay, the up-and-coming wine region of South America. A quarter of the country's production is Tanat. Another grape that's becoming really big there is Albariño, which is a Spanish white grape. Was it also because, because I had read that it was for the extraction methods that they used yes. for Tanat? Yeah, because this was my study. Yeah. I did the study over there, over the, uh, the whole period that I have, extraction, how many tannin, we, sh- we keep it to a longer period, how much, how much tannin we can gain, uh, where to stop, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which temperature to ferment your... Uh, I did the whole study for six months, it was really extremely, extremely uh, interesting. Was uh, it useful for well, applying it could, here? It could have been useful if I, sh- if I worked at the... At the wine, as the wine continue, mm. you know, but it didn't, uh, didn't. Uh, but so then you came back and did export. Yeah, 
Yeah. So but you still have input in how... Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, so this was my condition, uh, that to, to stay uh, mm-hmm. and, and this and this what, what happened. So we do the, uh, the blending uh, together, we talk, we taste the ones uh, mm-hmm. together and then have a committee. To, yeah. So we we're still involved in the, not wine making, but wine uh, blending, which process. is very important when wine blending. Yeah. So considering how the, the wine world now within Lebanon has boomed in the last 20 years, let's mm. say, how do you feel about that? Since you were there basically when it was still going through its adolescence, where do you see it going? Competition is excellent. It's very good. It has to, uh, it, it pushes you. Enhance your, your production and to look, do more studies and do, uh, and pay attention to what you're, uh, what you're producing, what you're doing. Uh, competition is excellent. Uh, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it has done a very good thing, very good. It was a very positive uh, uh, thing for uh, the Lebanese uh, wineries. You know, we produce three million bottles, we have no stocks. We sell everything. So we, we don't have competition, you might say. We have different segments, we have different ones, entry level, medium level, more than medium level and then high level. And then, as, as I said, we sell to more than 40 countries and then we have good, uh, good. And then our presence in Lebanon, you know, that Xara is a must, if I may say. You won't go to any Lebanese restaurant or to any restaurant in Lebanon, let's say 95%, they have Xara. Do you feel and that one product or two products, but they have Xara. That's that's in the smallest shop they have. They have Xara. It's some kind of a must till now, you know. But we have to, of course, work it, keep on uh, working on on this to be to keep this this position of, of leader uh, on the market. It's not easy because everybody's shooting on the leader, uh, <laughs> to uh, which is normal, you know. Yeah. Do you feel the this competition that happens locally actually helps abroad, though. Like you, all the wineries team up. As when long as yeah, as long as they produce uh, nice wine, this would be great. But imagine producing really shitty wines, uh, so the word, and then someone who doesn't even know Lebanese wine he tastes this wine and said, "Is this the Lebanese wines?" You know, because we're gaining notoriety all over the world now. Mm-hmm. But you might have one or two producers producing really. I'm not saying that exists, but this could could happen. Yeah. That's what that's what the worries us. But till now, alhamdulillah, the Lebanese uh, wine uh, uh, quality is really we're blessed by having this this climatic conditions and we have dynamism, very strong dynamism, Lebanese dynamism. We have connection all over the world and uh, succeed to place their uh, their wines all over uh, all over the world. You know, it's. Uh, uh, and then you find Lebanese all over the world also. So this this helps uh, in selling your wine and being present on, on various uh, markets. So what Eli is saying is, if we do work together and we try to market Lebanon as a whole, it can help. As long as all of the wines are good. You don't want to be representing a country and have subpar wine. And maybe someone who has never tried anything from Lebanon tries this subpar Lebanese wine, and from that one bad experience, they cross off the entire country as a wine-producing nation. It sounds extreme, but a lot of people do this. Imagine if you're trying something new from a certain place and you have one pretty bad experience. You might not go back to that place again. Luckily though, most wine produced in Lebanon is pretty fantastic. We have a lot of factors working on our side, as far as sunshine, fertile lands, altitude, rich soils, we've got a lot working for us. So that's not really a big problem. What is a problem is funding. There isn't a lot of support from the government. A lot of things have to be paid for out of pocket. There's no subsidizing. You'd think that there would be some kind of support for a national product. But when it comes to money, things are scarce. Here, Eli gives us the example of ProVine, which is a trade show that occurs in Dusseldorf, Germany, every March. Since recording this, ProVine has been cancelled, like all the other events across the world. In uh, ProVine, where we're going to ProVine, I talked to the uh, um, Greek uh, producers who were not, not very far from us, 
uh, talk to the uh, Cypriot also next to us because they put us on and all of them they don't pay anything any rent just wow. bring in here their, their ones they go in and put the ones that's all what they do of course they pay the ticket they pay but we have to pay everything We're talking about 10,000 euros per, per uh, company which is not uh, it's not uh, on top a big of everything you're paying on top of everything to be there you have to add to, to it uh, five six thousand uh, yeah already three days yeah yeah, the cost like of the employees, the wine, exactly. everything. And then nothing guaranteed, huh? Yeah. Nothing is guaranteed that you're going to uh, get any of that to back. Get any of that back, right? Yeah. So uh, you have to really prepare your uh, before going going there. So I have a whole uh, three days of uh, of meetings because this is what helps. Uh, so you yeah, have to just really to prepare. It's not, they will not come. Competition is so tough now. Every every uh, country is producing one. Mm. Every single country is producing one, good or bad, but they are producing one. You know that in the states, fifty-one states yeah, produce all states one. Produce one. All states. Yeah. Which is so weird. Exactly. So <laughs> you go there, you're afraid. Say, Jesus, how am I going to sell the one with all these ones around you? All these ones around you. Uh, Japan could be a good a good uh, market. We work on it more more mm-hmm. than than before because it could be a very positive uh, market. Not easy, and the thing with the with the Carlos Gosson did not help. Oh so yeah. It's, uh, Carlos Gosson is a big businessman who was based in Japan. I don't want to get into the long story of what happened there, but to sum it up in. A few seconds, he was the CEO and or chairman of Michelin, Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi. This guy was everywhere and he was a really big deal back in Lebanon because he's Lebanese, French and Brazilian. Unfortunately, at some point, he was accused of underreporting his earnings, misusing company assets, misappropriation of funds. There was a really big scandal. He was in jail in Japan up until December of 2019 when he smuggled himself out of the country in a suitcase. He claims that he is innocent, but right now he's listed as an internationally wanted fugitive. This has affected relations between Lebanon and Japan, understandably. Carlos is also a partner at Exir, a winery in Batrun, so he's not exactly removed from the wine world of Lebanon. But it's really unfortunate that the whole industry has to be affected by this mess. I won't get into it more than that. There's plenty you can find on the internet if you want to read more about this whole thing. But for now, let's get back to Chateau Xara and export. Is it is it more effective for Chateau Xara to let's say, enter a new country with five other wineries from Lebanon? Is it more effective that way or is it... A good producer, yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. It's really, really good. Like, uh, we go to, this, let's say, the States and then all of our importers, they have two or three Lebanese uh, mm-hmm. uh, producers, you know. It's not only one. And we get along very well. We ship all together. Yeah. We're stronger like, like, yeah. uh, like, uh, like this. Different segments, different prices, different quality of, of wine. And then, yeah, and that way the distributor actually has a portfolio, exactly. not and just one. Sure, and then I tell you, I wouldn't go to Provine alone. I would go with other producers. Mm. It gives much more impact on the on the market. Let's see, Lebanon or Syria. Right. But you go alone. Just they might just pass in front of you and yeah. not even see you. But when you have a large uh, stand. Uh, with Lebanese flag, with the pictures, with the huge mm-hmm. uh, TV showing uh, Lebanon, the ski, resorts, uh, yeah. people standing and then looking at this. What country is this? What country is this? <laughs> no, although you have the flag, and have the flag. <laughs> they are not very far. They always, they, they always, always they put them next to us, mm-hmm. and they all come to taste the wine, take pictures. Uh, I have a question that's like not really related to export, but I've always wondered about the observatory. Yeah. Um, right now, it's just a summer residence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there any stories well, about it? Because it's just, I found it well, fascinating. Well, it was the first observatory in the whole Middle East. Was it, it though? It used to. Uh, huh? Was it? Oh yes, yes, yes. Because there was no one. Uh, one. A B eighteen ninety seventy or eighteen fifty six fifty seven. In but was the observatory uh, there? 
Yeah, yeah. From at, the at the beginning, you had the. Because uh, on the website it the says the 1907 or something. 1907, they started the pluviometry, the, the study of the, uh, the bureau, the house of Zafar Shawi. Okay. That's when earthquake, pluviometry, uh, uh, okay. but the other one was, was uh, from the beginning. The advantage mm-hmm. is that when, when uh, Per Plassa came and was among the, the first, so he was the guy who studied the, uh, the, uh, okay. the and and things like that. And then he brought, they brought this uh, from, from France. It's so it was there show. from the beginning? Yeah, it was there from the beginning. So but not the, uh, the, the study. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but and the, the facility of, itself. Uh, facility. Yeah. So they have this and then they have the studies. And the person who was in charge of, uh, of this during the war, I was there. Mm-hmm. 80, 81 or eight, perhaps 81. And the Syrian came and they took off the uh, Shrevik oh. and they burned them in order to make fire and then they, and then they put uh, uh, plastic covers uh, so stupid and then they, they went into the, this, this place and we had registers I've seen them, I've seen Per, uh, per Bois working on them this, this big daily uh, temperature uh, in the morning, temperature in the afternoon, temperature at night, uh, 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 how many hours of sunshine, uh, if it rains, how many millimeters, mm-hmm. uh, humidity in the morning, humidity at night, uh, the average. This, this big, and every day they used to note everything. They took these uh, documents and they burned them to, to make, make fire. So Perbois came and it was crazy. So they taught him to the uh, fig tree that you can see the large fig tree. This is something that I saw. And we went to, uh, to uh, Officer Fuad and we begged him. This is a man who's 83 years old. He's going to die. Because he went and then he saw that they were burning this and he started hitting them. You know, a French guy, crazy French guy. <laughs> and only started hitting them. And then, so they took him and then uh, and they tied you him can to go. This, it's, it's something that I have seen and I have witnessed. When was this? Uh, 81 or 81? 82, yeah. Okay. Imagine. So we had to beg them to, uh, to let, him, let him go because this guy is, this is the work, and the, what, what was explained, this is the work of, of, of tens of tens of, of, of years, of, of very old records. Uh, records, and then you don't have the right to do this. It's really crazy. And then, oh my God. Yeah. Is there anything left of them? No. All of them? The, all of them. Oh no. It was yellow pages from the up and then columns. Oh. This big, this big. Are there pictures? This, this. I wish we had uh, by that time phones with pictures on that you would have. I would have taken pictures no one would have uh, uh, dreamed of. Their presence so they used to do. And, yeah, exactly. That's but, so that's yeah, not clear on the website. What? That the observatory was built from the beginning, because from okay. what I understood that it was... Observatory, we call it observatory, not yeah. the building. It's the house where Zafar Shaw is. It's the second one. Okay. Observatoire. Uh, and, but the cupola was there and was the uh, Père Plassard's... Uh, and the telescope was there. Was there, yeah. there yeah. If not 1857, but, but uh, the guy uh, did all the studies and then they, they came. And then if you read about those, they, they always mention Xara and Eubi. Yeah. But before that was so. You know, now that you tell me, I'm, I'm not uh, sure, but I, what I've heard, <laughs> yeah. that was when Perplassar came, he brought with him and they built this, uh, this uh, observatory. Uh. I should talk to AUB. Hmm? Ask them too. Yeah. Or, or try to talk with the uh, Jesuits. This, mm, that'll be harder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Especially because I don't see It's a of, of, of uh, knowledge they have. Mm. These guys are really amazing. I don't know, but uh, what I've heard and what they were talk- talking is that number one was Xara, mm-hmm. and then came uh, the AUB. Okay. And even the, the surrounding countries used to take uh, information from them. Mm-hmm. The I was there when they took the lens. Did they steal it? The same. Like Three, four men. No. I mean, it's really huge. Yeah. One. They were carrying it and then took it. Why? They broke the uh, the machines. We're just looking at that. 
they broke the machines in order to get the uh, the, the machine the pluviometry and then the earthquake things like that you know they, they have uh, they say ma- magnetis the magnets magnets yeah. yes Okay, listeners, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent right now because I find this to be a really interesting chapter in relation to Xara. The more research I do, the more I'm convinced that Chateau Xara's observatory was not the first in the Middle East. I haven't asked the Jesuits themselves, but from what I can find, the earliest reports state that it was built in 1902 but the majority say 1906-1907 and gradually grew larger and larger in the three to five years after that. Now, the AUB, or American University of Beirut, which was founded in 1866, built the Lee Observatory in 1874. So whether it was 1902 or 1906, it's still way later than the Lee Observatory. When AUB first opened, it was called the Syrian Protestant College, and at the time they offered an astronomy course, and that was mandatory for all students up until 1912. Today, no such course exists, and neither does the observatory. Well, I mean, the observatory is still there, but it's just a shell of the structure. It's used as another university building, nothing to do with what it once did. Regardless of whether the Xara Observatory was first or not, doesn't really matter. It still contributed bucket loads of scientific data that is still relevant till today. And it's another example of French influence in Lebanon. The observatory had four different subdivisions, astronomy, geomagnetism, meteorology, and seismology. Lebanon sits on top of multiple fault lines, and it's very earthquake-prone as a country. So seismic monitoring and records are super important. The observatory also contributed to geodesy, which means land surveying, including the Earth's position in space and its gravitational field. For example, Bonaventure Berlotti, a doctor in science from the University of Paris and the first director of the Xara Observatory, used to observe star transits with a Meridian telescope. By doing so, he could get the geographic coordinates of Xara, and he used those coordinates as the main point for the geodetic network of the Levant. To put it plainly, it was really important in mapping. Despite what Elise says about the ledgers being destroyed, I found some surviving scanned journals that can be accessed online, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. And Father Plassard, the priest he mentioned, he used to work for the National Center for Scientific Research in France. They funded the Xara Observatory up until 1968, and then it was transferred to the Lebanese version of that organization here, which was created two years before. Plassard was the last Jesuit director of the observatory, and he, along with a French geophysicist, Pierre Stahl, worked on a climate atlas, catalogs of earthquakes, and various gravimetric maps. The observatory was doing incredibly important work for the region, not just the country. As far as today's observatories in Lebanon go, there are a few things to note. Although AUB's Lee Observatory is defunct, Nicolas Shaheen, who was the last director before it closed in 1980, then set up equipment on the roof of his house. He wanted to continue tracking all of this data without it getting interrupted. His weather station, which was moved to his daughter's house, still tracks rainfall, wind, and humidity to this day, and you can access the stats on his website. I will also put the link to that in the show notes. As of 2020, Lebanon has two main observatories, both in association with two private universities, the Notre Dame University and the Beirut Arab University. There is a project for a national observatory to be built in Pshare with a telescope that was donated from the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan. I got in touch with Roger Hajjad, a professor from NDU, so that I could get an update on what's been happening with that project he says the planning is underway, but it still needs donors for the 500k price tag. Given everything happening globally and locally right now, it's going to be a while before this becomes a priority. If you have any information about this, please get in touch because I really love this topic and I love finding out more about it and all the different stories that are linked to it, which I'm going to share on Instagram. And now to return to our regular programming. Thank you. The Académie Internationale du Vent. That was in January. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they appointed you. Yes. How does that happen? It was, like, it was uh, they have to choose, uh, elect someone. So it was Serge Hosher and me. Mm-hmm. And then Serge Hosher passed away. So they waited for two years and then they passed to other person. And then they... Uh, there's they, uh, barely when 100 members, to, right? There's, yes. Yeah, it's yeah. very small. Yeah. Yeah. What does this right. mean? Like, what does it do for... The academy is... is all projects that has to do with uh, with wine, how to improve wine, how to um, how to uh, say uh, not only the quality but to protect the the appellations, uh, to protect the history of these appellations, to protect the the way it's been been done, the old way and things like that, and uh, uh, to let people discover these. Mm. So we are a huge committee for one person. Traveling every year, one or two countries, and then we have to do our our homework to study who are the one is, and then each one takes uh, a uh, a uh, a part, uh, with, and then do the studies uh, about uh, where the wines are, who are the producers, whom to uh, visit, uh, who are the ones that are respectful for uh, for. Uh, uh, but obviously for having. Having representation yeah. from Lebanon is a big deal. Like having... it's the only Arab. Uh, yeah. Uh, Arab, uh, of course. I, I I went with the uh, the uh, Gaston Hosher and we did the uh, presentation. It was full full book. Mm-hmm. The eight one uh, seats were were taken and was really uh, a very nice thing. And then you have like Gaia uh, producer uh, people like Gaia, three hundred uh, euros the bottle. I know you know Gaia. Chateau um, Giscourt, um, uh-huh. um, uh, Palmer, in Porto, um, Ikem, the owner. It's not. It's not the. Uh, yeah. So like. It's the, really. The, I think that we were very very proud of. of that's scary. Being being the, yeah, <laughs> uh, especially I can tell you when when we went to do the presentation after the presentation that had been done by Guy and uh, mm-hmm. was really. No pressure. But, uh, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I can tell you, Gaston and I were really very, uh, very proud of, of being there, being chosen, being elected mm-hmm. as, as members. And, uh, wow. This was quite a surprise, of course. But you have uh, the Param, I don't know, the Godfather. You have to have two, uh, two Param who would. Uh, would choose you and basically oh, okay. the study on why did we choose him, uh, okay. what he did, uh, what. Uh, so it's very like, uh, yeah, fashion. very yeah. Okay. And I was also very proud to be uh, to be uh, elected uh, like like Serge Hosher who has a, a an international authority mm-hmm. all over the world. Yeah. So what do you but think is next? Day. Next. Retirement. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not planning to retire now, but, uh, but uh, yeah. uh, is what's happening uh, now affecting the wine business? No, oh, definitely, definitely, for sure. Considering but, that uh, most of what we need to create our products is, uh, is, is, a is from abroad. Because this was uh, the banks also. Yeah. Uh, the problem with the banks, I don't know if the revolution, but the revolution perhaps uh, said it, but it was something to do to happen sooner or later. But uh, what I really uh, appreciate in this is that the mentality has completely changed. Um, regions opening up, uh, talking less about the religion and the, the future of this country. And I'm very, very uh, optimistic about the, uh, the future of the, uh, the young so so mature and so uh, really and we never thought that Lebanese might uh, do revolution never it never happens never happens Syria they, they, they hired that was before the for five five liras or something like that the price of that was crazy in Jordan the entire Hukumi in, in Algeria entire everybody Libya, else but everybody us else. <laughs> whatever happens whatever Taxes, more taxes. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. But now it's, it's really great to see what's uh, 
what's happening and, and uh, politicians they will have to be much 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 more careful now and, and what they do how they act with their uh, uh, family also mm -hmm. the son the wife uh, cannot go uh, just like that and then we yeah. own the we own the I think the, that was the country the biggest win. Exactly. was that now they actually are like they're aware that hmm? people are going to say something and then calling for uh, non-religious uh, elections. elections and then this 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 it's is great step. I think yeah. yeah huge step of course but khalas, we are on the trail yeah that's that's just a good thing time. we are on the on the on the right trail mm -hmm. and it takes time yeah, of course it's a very very difficult time a long listen you two three years at least uh, of difficult time we will not finish uh, yeah. I'm convinced you have four or five years uh, Minimum, of difficult, yeah. of difficult, really difficult time. But then, the next generation will really enjoy. Uh, As you probably guessed, this episode was recorded before the coronavirus took over everything. If you want to learn more about Serge Houchard, you can go back to episode nine of this podcast. That's it for this one. Thank you so much for listening once again. Please share it with your friends. Tell your peeps about this. And please rate and review it on iTunes because it helps the podcast get discovered by new listeners and people who are probably just as bored as you at home. Stay safe, everyone. And if you have any feedback, any suggestions, anything that you would like to let me know, please shoot me an email at info at beforbacchus.com. That's info at beforbacchus.com. B-F-O-R-B-A-C-C-H-U-S. Com. I also figured some of you may be popping some bottles alone or with family or neighbors or roommates. If you have a bottle or bottles of Lebanese wine or have the ability to get some and you want to have a guided tasting, let me know and we'll set up a Zoom session of my History of Lebanese Wine class for free. DM me, tell me what you're drinking, and we'll schedule a time to drink together. In the meantime, stay safe and thank you once again for listening. This is Farah signing off for the Beef for Backus podcast. Mm -hmm.